you don't know me, my name is Tim. I have the privilege of pastoring here, and this week I have the privilege of having a pretty uh, good head cold going on too. So um, we're going to do our best to keep it on the rails today and uh, keep it on track, but you never know. So we'll see where this all goes, but let's dive into what we're talking about. And today, I I don't really have a story to get us started. I'm just going to kind of give you the bottom line up front, and then we're going to dive into the topic. And uh, just one quick note, that in two weeks, we're launching this new uh, series. It's only two weeks. If you're thinking, wow, Exodus is going so fast. Oh, no, no, no. There'll be at least 25, 30 more weeks in Exodus, uh, but we're just taking a break and addressing this important topic uh, that I think will reach a lot of people. So I encourage you to invite somebody. Uh, It's a great opportunity to invite somebody in your circle of influence. All right, here's the bottom line. Here's what we're going to talk about today, and that's this, that, that God works extraordinary things through ordinary people who trust him enough to obey. This is a pattern you see throughout history. If you read through the Bible, you can't help uh, but see this over and over and over again. And in the lives of people I know, this is a principle I've seen over and over again, is that God ends up working extraordinary things through ordinary people who just simply trust him enough to say yes and then take a step of faith and obey. And so today, really, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to people who have decided to follow Jesus, because I figure that's probably most of us in the room. Um, Although towards the end, I'm going to talk to some of you maybe who are still on the fence about following Jesus and maybe haven't decided to follow him yet. But for a while, you're kind of off the hook. You get to listen to uh, what the rest of us are supposed to do. Now, here's what I just want to say um, to sort of set us up. I've got some assumptions going into this talk today, and that is for probably the majority of the people in the room, I'm hoping that you, you have decided to follow Jesus, and I'm going to assume that you would like to see God use your life. You, you would say, I would like to see God do extraordinary things, whatever that means in, in my life. I would like to see God do extraordinary things through my life. I would like to see God move through my life. I would like to see God accomplish some significant things. And I'm going to assume that most of you would say, I would like to experience all that God has for me in life, right? That that's something my heart is. I would like to experience all that God has for me in this life. And I would really like to see his hand actively at work in the day-to-day circumstances of my life. Anybody feel like that describes you? Yeah? All right, everybody's like, I'm not sure. This is a trick question. I'm not raising my hand. He's going to come back around. No, no, not a trick. Now, here, here's, the, here's the catch, and here's what we're going to talk about today, is if that's your heart, that only happens when you trust God enough to obey him in the ordinary decisions of everyday life. And so, we're going to dive right in today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, but we're going to pick it up uh, in 3 with one of the verses we read last week just to set the stage. And just to catch you up, if you're just joining us, we're in, about, we're in week 5 of this series. And Moses, a very famous character, one of the most famous guys in history, uh, at about eight, the age of 40, Moses 
goes out, he's strong, he's handsome, he's confident. We're told he's powerful in speech and in action. And he goes out, he knows he has a calling from God to rescue his people. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands that he knows the right timing. And he ends up killing an Egyptian, burying him in the sand, and then coming around to his people and trying to uh, you know, stop the quarreling and stuff. And they turn around and go, who are you? Who are you? Who made you judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? Long story short, he has to flee into the desert. So the next time we see Moses, one sentence later, is 40 years. 40 years in the desert. He's a shepherd. He goes, he takes the sheep out, he takes the sheep in. Pretty slow lifestyle compared to the prince of Egypt, the guy in the palace. We find Moses as a kind of humbled older guy who's now content to live an ordinary life. No longer self-confident, brash. And it's at this point where God chooses to meet him in the burning bush and confirms what he had planted in his heart 40 or 50 or 60 years ago as a young man that God did have a call on his life and that God wanted to work through him to accomplish extraordinary things. And so God appears to him back in chapter three and we'll pick it up in verse 11. And it says, God says basically, hey, I have chosen you to, call, to lead my people out of Israel. And here's Moses' response. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. You see what happened here? Moses actually at this point has a pretty accurate view of himself. Who am I? He knows his past And, you know, I was raised in the palace, but I'm not really an Egyptian. The Egyptians don't really accept me. And clearly, when I tried to help my Israelite brothers and sisters, they're like, who are you? You didn't even grow up among us. You you, you walk like an Egyptian, bro. (laughs) And so he knows. He's like, I know my past. I know where I came from. And who am I? You got the wrong man for the job. But this whole thing is... God says, it's not about you. It's about the fact that I'm going to accomplish this thing. I had to get you out of your own way so that you you would be able to be a mouthpiece and be able to be used by me, but it's gonna be my power that's gonna accomplish this thing. See, here's how this plays out in our lives today is when you feel like God is calling you into an ordinary step of obedience or perhaps it's something that feels extraordinary to you, something that feels risky or scary, or perhaps it's just, kind of an everyday thing, and you just don't want to do it, right? Um, We so often talk ourselves out of obeying God now because of who we were a short while ago or a long while ago. Our past often allows us to, to talk ourselves out of obeying God now. Like things like, man, you just snapped at your kids last week. And, and you had a couple moments there where you weren't exactly, you know, all that kind to your wife. And now your natural tendency as a husband and as a father is just sort of to pull back. And when the devotion, like the time comes up for family devotion on, you know, agape love and kindness, you're just like, honey, I think you should take this one. And you just start to, to withdraw from the thing, the step that you know God's calling you to take because you know last week, right, or couple of years ago, or your coworker um, knows the person you were a year ago. I mean, you did spring break together. Um, they know the person you were, but you, you've been, you know, you've been trying to, you've been following Jesus. You've been taking some real steps, 
in your life. And yet when the opportunity comes up to say, hey, can I pray for you uh, as they're going through something, or the opportunity comes up to, to say something about Jesus, you hesitate and you hold back because it's like, uh, they're just going to think I'm a hypocrite because uh, I kind of am, right? Newsflash for you, we all kind of are. The gospel is about the fact that we have the opportunity to start over today following God, right? And that we have forgiveness and life in him and that you, you pick yourself up or he picks you up literally and forgives you and then says, walk towards me, run towards me. Turn your back on that, right? And so this is how we talk ourselves because of our past. We talk ourselves out of following Jesus so often. But here's the cool thing is Back to that scripture, God doesn't just try to pump up Moses. Did you see that? Like, he never speaks to his self-esteem or his low self-confidence and says, bro, you can do it, right? Come on, repeat after me. You're smart, you're good-looking, doggone it, people like you. Repeat after me, come on. God never does that. What does he do? He says, yeah, yeah, I know. I know your past. Yeah, I've been watching you sort of mellow out out here in the desert for 40 years. That's part of the plan. Now you're where I want you to be. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your life. And so that's where Moses finds himself. And just incidentally, a note on this for all of our um, people in the room that you would not say, you know, you're a spring chicken anymore. God chooses to use Moses powerfully and significantly later in his life. And so just because, you know, you're getting ready to retire or you've retired don't think that God does not have something significant for you to accomplish. And so, flash forward to Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. After this long dialogue between God and Moses, and God's telling him how this whole thing's going to go down. And Moses starts, uh, he launches into this thing, and it's where we so often go when it comes to obeying God. And that's justifying, making excuses, and delaying obedience, and then sometimes just flat out saying, yeah, I don't think so, I don't want to. Anybody feel like you've done some of those things when God's called you to? You can nod, you don't have to raise your hand. Yeah. And so here's, here's what God's telling Moses what he's going to accomplish. And Moses answered, what if? What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? See, this is a valid question because he remembers what happened last time he tried to talk to his Israelite brothers and they went, who are you, right? And so now he's coming home with this wild story of God actually appearing to him in a burning bush and going, hey, um, God's chosen me to be the instrument to help lead you guys out into freedom, out of slavery. Uh-huh. So he's like, what if they don't believe me? What if they say the Lord did not appear to you? And so verse two, then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. <clears throat> now let me just point out something here about snakes. Um, actually, I've got so many cool snake stories. I had this one time um, where I was uh, a kid and my grandpa took me out rock hunting up on Black Ridge up above the monument and we found this four foot long bull snake and I bring it home and my mom's a biologist, right? So she's not like squeamish 
uh, about things, but I walk in with this thing wrapped around my neck, and I heard her squeal in a way that I've never heard my mother before or since, and she says, get that thing out of my house. And so I had to store it outside, and then true story, it almost gave my legally blind neighbor who is also diabetic a heart attack, and we got threatened to be sued, sort of jokingly, but sort of not. So it escaped, yeah. So that was my four-foot-long bull snake. Um, and then this snake right here, this is not a, a friendly snake, not one you would wrap around your neck, which you're like, that's creepy. I would never, I wouldn't either. I don't know what I was thinking. Now I'm like, ew. Um, but this snake was a freaky, scary snake, I'm pretty sure, uh, because Moses is a shepherd, Right? It's not like he's never seen a snake before. He's killed some snakes out in the desert. This snake is one of the deadly ones. He jumps back, ah, right? Which is what you do when a snake startles you. I don't care who you are. You might be the most manly man, right? But a snake slithers right in front of you, and you're like, ah, right? Um, I was in South Africa a, a while ago doing missions work, and I was into jogging, there's these cool trails in this area. But in South Africa, they have freaky snakes, not like, you know, just rat. Hopefully here, you go jogging up on the monument, and if there's a rattlesnake in the trail, he'll either slither off or rattle, and you'll know it, right? That's, what, that's your hope, at least. That's what you're telling yourself. Um, out here, they have this snake called the puff adder, and the puff adder, their defense mechanism, if they hear somebody coming, is they'll just lie perfectly still until you step on them. And then they'll bite you, and it'll, like, rot your leg off, nastiness. So I remember jogging and just looking everywhere. And then I told you I had snake stories, and this is only a couple of them. <laughs> this other time, we went to the snake museum in South Africa. Anybody been to a reptile museum in the States? And there's, like, two-inch thick glass, and, you know, it's very sterile. We went to the snake museum where they had cobras, spitting cobras, the kind that, you know, spit poison out like six to ten feet into your eyes. Um, and instead of two-inch thick glass, they had these little windows with catches like that. Yeah, it was freaky. So a little, anyway. Um, so back, um, I told you, you never know what happens when I'm a little like, you know, sick. Uh, kind of gets off the rails. But anyway, um, where was I? Snake. That's right, Snake. <laughs> So the thing about the snake is that the snake, this is significant. This isn't just a trick God's doing. The thing about the snake is that the snake was a symbol in Egypt of power. In fact, you, have you seen an Egyptian headdress, the Pharaoh's headdress? And right at the top of this is the cobra, the, the striking cobra, right? And so I think this is probably a cobra, and it's a symbol of sovereignty, of royalty, of deity, of the divine authority in ancient Egypt. That's what the Egyptians would have thought about this. And so God says, here, check this out. Throw your staff down. Snake, ah! And then to show like, hey, you don't have to be worried or afraid of the power of Pharaoh. Here's what God tells him to do. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the what? The tail. How many want to sign up? Yeah, <clears throat> this may actually, this might be worth just coming to church today for. If you're ever out in the desert and you see a, a nasty rattler, don't pick it up by its tail. Serious, that's like, that's free, okay? That, that'll help you. 
You don't have to like be a Jesus follower for that to be useful um, for you. Uh, but here's the thing. You don't pick up a snake, especially a deadly, you don't pick up a deadly snake by its tail, do you? And so this is a step of faith. God's calling him to obey in a, in a simple and an ordinary but freaky way right here because God wants to do something extraordinary. And so Moses obeys. I love it. He just, he reached out. He took his, I don't know how long this took. I'm guessing it, it wasn't like a instant thing. I think he had to probably work up his courage. He's like, you know, and then he grabs it, right? And he took hold of the snake and it turned back to, into a staff in his hand. That's cool. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And you don't have to be afraid of Pharaoh. We're going to take care of Pharaoh's power. Now, I thought about doing an illustration with this whole thing, but we're not a snake handling church, right? So, anyway. So, but here, here's, what, here's the, the point in this that you need to see is I don't think obedience means not having any fear. Courage even doesn't mean that you're not a little afraid. I'm, I'm betting Moses was terrified as he reached out to grab the tail of the snake, right? It's it, trust and obeying. Um, trust is obeying God in spite of your fear. Trust is going, I know that God's calling me to do this. I know this is what the word of God says. I'm gonna do it even though I'm a little bit nervous about this. So Moses does it. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people who trust him enough to obey. Verse six, then the Lord said, put your hand inside of your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It has become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. I bet he put it back in very quickly. <laughs> now here's why this is so significant. Because in spite of all of Egypt's technology, I mean, think about this. This is the nation that was building the pyramids during this time. Something that still amazes us today. In spite of being the most powerful nation in the world, this is a condition that they could do nothing about. This was deadly. There was no answer to this. And so God says, hey, I have an answer. My power is beyond anything you could ever imagine. When you trust and obey, extraordinary things are possible. Verse eight, then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And again, this third sign. See, none of these, these aren't just tricks God's giving them. Hey, this will be a cool magic trick. No, these are specific things that God is doing to demonstrate his power over the so-called gods of Egypt. See, the, the Nile was worshipped, the river, the, the Nile was worshipped as the father of life. Um, in fact, Egypt's wealth, its power, its livelihood centered around this river because it would bring all this um, soil into the Nile Delta. It's what made Egypt a wealthy, powerful country. The Nile literally was the source of life for Egypt. And so God says, I want you to take some of that water pour it out. 
And here's the cool thing. Um, Moses, there's not, we're in the desert, right? There's no water here. So you're just gonna have to trust me on this one. When you get there, I don't, I'm not gonna demonstrate this one for you. When you get there, I want you to go down. You're gonna take a cup. You're gonna take a thing out of the Nile. You're gonna pour it out. It's still water, still water. You're pouring, still water. It's gonna hit the ground. Then it's gonna turn to blood. Can you imagine Moses actually doing that? Which he does. Step of faith, isn't it? God's saying, Moses, do you trust me enough to do this thing that uh, you're not gonna see it yet? You're gonna have to step out. You're gonna have to do it before you see the outcome. Now, Moses at this point, he goes from kind of asking these questions, God gives him these things, and now he just really starts making excuses. And so he says this, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Uh, This is called an excuse. It's really interesting because Acts says Moses was powerful in speech and and deed and other points in front of Pharaoh. He seems like he holds himself up pretty well, right? And so I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. We don't know. Some people speculate maybe he had a a stuttering thing, you know. Um, We don't really know. I I have a a pet theory, and I'm not sure if it's a good theory or not, but I came up with it this week as I was reading this. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if that's what's going on. See, he grew up 40 years in the palace, speaking Egyptian, and then he's been 40 years in the desert with the Midianites, speaking whatever dialect they spoke. And I think... Maybe what's going on here is really Hebrew is a second language to him. I, I lived in Mexico like 20 years ago. I can still order tacos, but that's about it. So I don't know. Maybe he just, he's like, I, I can't. I go and I sound like an idiot when I try talking to my people. Perhaps that's what's going on here, right? But whatever the point is, the point is this is an excuse. It's an excuse he's making to keep himself from obeying what God is calling him to do and what he knows he's called to do. And so the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Um, you did? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, now here's where we really get down to it. Here's where we really get down to it. He just doesn't want to go. Like parents, you've had kids where you've been encouraging to do something they needed to do, right? You can do it. Like, you can do it. Come on, I'm here. Come on, I'll catch you. Come on, we'll do this together. And excuses, excuses. And then finally, like, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. If you've had kids, you've you've experienced that, right? And so... Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send somebody else. I don't want to do it. Uh, Send somebody else. And then verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And everyone who has kids understands this emotion right here in that situation. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God 
to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So God says, get going. I got a solution. Aaron's on his way. He'll help you out in this department. Now, get going and obey. And oh, don't forget that staff. And this is, I think, kind of cool. Like we've been saying, God uses ordinary people and the ordinary things in their hands to do extraordinary things. You see this all throughout the scripture. God takes this staff, this very ordinary thing, the shepherd's staff that he's brought out for years and years and used. And see, here's how I think God, you see this in scripture. God wants to accomplish something. He's like, well, what do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? Uh, staff. Cool. Throw that down. That ordinary shepherd's staff is going to be important. Um, it'll come into play when you cross the Red Sea and, you know, when you strike the rock and bring the water out. I'll use that. David, what do you have in your hand? A slingshot. Perfect. Let's go get a giant. Um, the disciples, hey, what do you have in your hands? Some fishing nets. Cool. Watch this. Throw them over on the other side of the boat. Um, hey, guys, you give them something to eat. I don't have anything. We don't have any food. Well, actually, uh, this little boy has a lunch. Perfect. Hand me that. And see, so here's the thing. In your life and in my life, God takes what's seemingly unimportant and just what's seemingly insignificant, and he will end up using it if you offer it to him and in obedience and in trust. He'll end up using it for something, to accomplish something extraordinary for his purposes in this world. And see, here's the thing about extraordinary things. A lot of times you hear extraordinary things and you think Moses leading a million plus people out of the promised land. Well, that's probably never gonna be me. You're right. It's probably never gonna be me either. Um, you're probably not going to be the next Billy Graham. Maybe you are. But for most of us, probably not. I'm probably not. But here's the thing. The extraordinary thing that God wants to accomplish in your life, I think, is really just being faithful in whatever your circle of influence is. And taking whatever thing he's placed in your hand and saying, Lord, I want to use this for your glory. I want to be obedient with this thing. I want to care enough about the people around me to lead them towards you, to open my mouth when you ask me. As, as, you know, as bad as I feel like I, I talk, I just blow it. I get, I get, the guy that started the vineyard, John Wimber, he said, when you pray for somebody, you know, how is it supposed to feel? He says, well, first your mouth, like your tongue swells up and you start sweating. When you get really freaked out, right? That's the point is we're ordinary people. It's scary for us sometimes to go, hey, can I pray for you? Or can I talk about Jesus? And you're like, all of a sudden you feel like, I don't know what to say. But it's those, when you take those ordinary steps and say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it, that God takes that and does extraordinary things. You know, um, Billy Graham had a Sunday school teacher. That was an extraordinary thing. Um, Moses had a mama. And when you read this story, the mama was the hero before Moses was. That was an extraordinary thing. This act of faith and trust in God that defied the order of the Pharaoh. Sort of. 
I mean, she technically put him in the Nile. The midwives, their, their obedience, that was an extraordinary thing. I love it in the story that we had five strong, courageous women before we ever got to the Moses guy. They were heroines in the story. All right, verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt and see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And this is so significant that Moses started. He started. See, this is the moment when belief, like, oh yeah, I believe in God. This is the moment when belief in God turns into trust, is when you start obeying the ordinary thing or the thing that scares you that God says do. This is the moment when just saying, I believe in God, it turns into trust, is when you start, when you take the step that God's calling you to take, when you do the ordinary little thing that God says, I want you to obey in. And this is, this is hopefully the direction your life is headed in. If you're a follower of Jesus, this should be, right? That in spite of trying to talk yourself out of it and excuses, let me just ask you, is your, is your life marked by a faith that starts? Like, I think a lot of times we're all a lot like Moses. God is prompting us to obey in an area of life, and we're like, nah, I don't think so. Nah, I think you got the wrong guy. Uh, I want you to do this. No, nah, I don't think so. But then the question is, are you going to actually obey or not? Or are you just going to keep putting it off, putting it down the road? And what God is looking for is people who go, okay, I'll start. I'm scared to death, but I'll take that next step. I'll obey. Let me just ask you, is there a desire in your heart to be obedient to Jesus? I hope so. He says, those who, those who love me obey my commands. That's one of the marks of someone who loves Jesus. And if there's no desire to obey Jesus, um, you really need to stop and search your heart and ask, where am I at? Is this thing just something I grew up in? Just church, you know, grew up coming to church. I just do it. It's just, just a tradition. Or do I love God? Do I love Jesus? Is there anything in your life other than showing up to church sometimes that differentiates your life from the world in general? It's a good question to ask. And here's the thing. Not that we ever obey perfectly. We don't get there in this life, do we? We don't get there. Um, not that we don't stumble. That's an experience common to all of us and an experience common to all of the so-called, you know, to all of the amazing great stories that we see in Scripture. Uh, they all stumbled along the way. It's not that we don't stumble, but there should be a trajectory of our life of becoming more like Jesus, of obeying him more faithfully, of wrestling with those attitudes in our heart and those habits and those behaviors in our life that we know don't honor him. Um, there's two ways I think really obedience to Jesus works its way out or works itself out in our lives. 
two, two ways. One is things we need to stop doing. And typically when you think of obeying, oftentimes for us, this, these are the first ones. And they're easy because typically they're associated with some guilt from your conscience. Telling you, like, you, you need to stop that, right? You need to stop that. Um, sometimes they're easier to identify. See, Jesus, uh, when there's this woman caught in adultery, uh, hauled in front of him, and he looks down at her, he says, I don't condemn you. He's full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And what does he say? He says, leave your life of sin. So there's things that, that need to be stopped in life, right? Stop taking that. Stop clicking that. Stop going there. There's things that need to be stopped. Uh, Galatians 4, there's a, the list that's opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. On the opposite side, there's some things. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's things that, that, that the Holy Spirit prompts you. If you're a follower of Jesus, it says stop. Stop. And here's the thing, as you lean into and say, I want my life to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, he gives you the power then to do that. Not by your own strength, but by his power, right? But, but, so we think of things in stopping, but the other side of that is things that we need to start. Things we need to start. Uh, James says it this way, he who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, to him that's sin. And so oftentimes we think about the things we need to stop and prioritize those, but we, we never get to the things that we know we need to start. Things like maybe forgiving someone in our life. It's a pretty big deal to Jesus. And there's this constant thing, you, you need to forgive, you need to forgive, you just haven't gotten around to it yet, right? Um, things like um, baptism wasn't an optional thing. And it's like, ah, I don't know. Just not get, get, don't get around to it. Don't get around to it, right? Um, putting others above yourself in certain areas of your life. Um, Giving first instead of just as an afterthought. Just a few examples, right? There's things we need to start. I have a pastor friend that started following Jesus, and one of the first things he knew he needed to start was actually get married. So it was actually a start and a stop. Because he was living with his girlfriend. He met Jesus. They both met Jesus. They started following Jesus. And he knew that was just the thing God was calling him to do. Hey, that's the next step. I need to get married. And so that's what he did. He took a step of obedience in that area. So something you need to start, something you need to stop, those are things to think through when it comes to obeying Jesus. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill 
your firstborn son. Now, let me just acknowledge that there's some tricky stuff in here, uh, some pretty deep stuff we don't have time to get to today, and it's coming up a little bit later in this series, and so we're going to deal with it there. Um, you know, things like, so God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then holds him accountable? How does that work? Some things that uh, actually people smarter than us have been arguing about for thousands of years, but we'll take our best stab at it, right? We'll try. But in the meantime, you can go read Romans 9 if you'd like to, if you're just too curious to wait. All right, now next we have, and we're going to close with this little section. We have one of the weirdest little three verses in the Bible. Just because of where it lands and how it lands. And, but it really ties into this whole theme we've been talking about, of obeying God and trusting him enough to obey. And so we're going to uh, go through this. It says this, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Wait, 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 what? You're my guy, Moses, go rescue the people. At, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At the time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. All right, let's pray, and I'll dismiss you. <laughs> Not going to touch that one. Just kidding. See, one of the fun things about going through the Bible, like verse by verse through books, is like you come to some stuff that otherwise you may just read and go like, what in the world, right? And so I want to just take a, take a minute, because this is one of the weird passages in scripture. And here's what you got to understand about it real quick. First thing is this. In Hebrew, the language is a lot more ambiguous than in any of the English translations, just the way the Hebrew works. And so there's things we really don't know. We don't know whether this is Moses that, that the Lord was um, moving against in judgment or whether this was Moses' son. And the word about isn't really a proper thing. It's more like seeking to. And so I'll just say, uh, there's a couple things you need to know about it. First off, this passage uh, refers to the covenant uh, with Abraham and the symbol of that covenant that happens back in Genesis chapter 17 is circumcision. That God makes it very clear that this is something that on the eighth day, every one of your sons has to be circumcised. This is the symbol of the covenant that you are part of the people of God. Now, Flash forward a couple thousand years, and, and what we learn in the New Testament is that the symbol of the new covenant in Jesus, this no longer becomes important in, in this. What becomes important is baptism is a symbol of the covenant we have, that we've been literally um, or figuratively buried with Christ and raised with him. So the, there's a symbol here. That's one of the reasons why baptism is such a big deal in, in Scripture. Does it save you? No. But it is a symbol of what's happened as you put your faith and trust in Jesus and identify your life with Jesus, right? And so this is what's going on. Circumcision, it's a really big deal. And there's really not a lot of wiggle room uh, when it comes to this. In fact, Abraham, when, the, when God first does this covenant, he and all the uh, like grown-up members of his household, Abraham was 75. And they had to do this. 
with a flint knife. Can I hear some like guys say ouch in the room? Yeah. All right. Eight days is a better plan, right? Okay, so here's what we think is going on here in this really weird passage. That Moses has a younger son, because we see sons, and we've only learned about one of them so far. That Moses has a younger son during this 40 years out in the wilderness. And what we think is happening because of this conversation with his wife, um, other cultures around the area also performed circumcision, but many of them did it later on. And so what we think might have been happening here, and some of this is speculation, but we think that Moses' wife was maybe like, hey, don't do that to the baby, come on. Oh, he's so cute. He's only eight days. Don't do that. And Moses is like, all right, whatever. We'll just wait till later. When God had made specific instructions, you do this at eight days, right? And so now Moses, he's being called to be the leader of God's people. And he hasn't even fulfilled one of the most basic, simple signs that you're part of God's people when it comes to his own family. And so on the way, the other thing that we don't, uh, that's really, that the English version probably isn't real clear on here, is it says God was seeking to kill him. So what we think was probably happening is on the way, either Moses or his son gets really sick. And because of whatever past conversations and arguments Moses and his wife have had, she knows exactly what to do in the circumstance. She gets it. And so she takes action, she grabs a flint knife, and does what she needs to do, and God relents. So the important thing to see here is God comes in judgment, but not to kill. God would have done that immediately, right, if that had been the goal. The goal was to bring him into obedience. That was God's goal here. And so God allows this judgment, whether it's a sickness or whatever, to come on him or his son in order to bring him into the place of realizing, hey, you skipped something that was a big deal to God. You said, oh, I'll get to that later. Ah, that's not so important. And God goes, oh, it's important. There was a very critical step of ordinary obedience that Moses had put off. And for the man who was gonna be the leader of God's people, that was a big deal. But now Moses is in motion. He's obeying God. He's dealt with his excuses. He's started and he's taken care of the stuff that he failed to do. And God's gonna use him mightily. And so as we close, let me just ask you this. What haven't you gotten around to when it comes to following God? What do you know that God has been calling you to do that's like, uh, it's sometime later. What excuses are you making from doing the thing that you know God's calling you to do in your life? What we started out saying God works extraordinary things through ordinary people who trust him enough to obey. See, the only way you get to that is when you trust him enough to take the steps of obedience he's calling you to take. The only way you, you experience what he wants to do through your life is when you do what you know he's calling you to do. What area do you need to obey in? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. What area do you need to obey him in? I have a question I want you just to leave with and ponder and take home. Is there an ordinary step of obedience that I need to take? 
Is there an ordinary step of obedience I need to take? What do I need to stop? What do I need to start? What do I need to say, okay, God, I, I'm, I'm going to do that. And for some in the room, um, maybe you just, you've been putting off actually following Jesus to begin with. That you've been on the fence about it for a while. That you, you haven't said, yes, I want to give my life to you. Yes, I believe you. And today could be the day that that, that really is your first step of obedience, is responding to God as he draws your heart and saying yes. And would you stand with me? See, the gospel is all about the, it begins with embracing what Jesus did for you, that you cannot make it to God on your own. And then it involves turning the word, the big theological word is repentance, which literally means turning away from the old life and turning to him. Maybe for some in the room, that is the step you need to take right now. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. But for all my other friends, with whatever the thing is that you feel like God's prompting you to do, let me just ask you, what do you think God might want to accomplish through you? What do you think that thing is? You'll, you'll never know unless you take that ordinary step of obedience that he's calling you to take. Let's pray. And we bow our heads and close our eyes. If anyone in the room, today's your day that you want to take that step of following Jesus, I just invite you to pray something like this after me, quietly or out loud, whatever you want. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I can't make it to you on my own. Lord, I want to follow you with my life. Will you forgive me? Will you welcome me into your family? I turn from my my old ways, Lord, and I want to follow you and obey you. Thank you for life in you. Lord, for all my other friends, would you just make this very clear to them what the ordinary step of obedience you're calling them to take. And then when you work in their lives in such cool ways that they would see answers to prayer, that they would see their lives used to draw others closer to you as they say yes and as they step out in courage and obedience. We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.